Hey everybody, I'm Happy Easter, and welcome back to another episode of my weekly show. I'm Father Roderick, and for eight days we are celebrating that Easter is finally here. And uh, I am going to talk about Easter traditions in the Netherlands. We'll review Moon Knight. I'll talk about the difference between Easter and the time that follows in the Gospels. And I will talk about a book that I read recently, which is organizing for the rest of us. I'm not making this up. <laughs> I'd love to share with you some of the things that I learned, because that's one of the things that I do once the all the, 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 the extra uh, celebrations of Holy Week and the Easter vigil, Easter morning, second day, Easter, when all that is over... I'm usually left with a very, very messy house because all the rest of the stuff that I normally do to keep order in my life has been kind of put on pause until we get this Easter thing over. So <laughs> I may have to spend some extra time this week cleaning up and reorganizing the house. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the Hubble telescope and a very interesting link with the world of Tolkien. We'll talk about uh, very exciting new technology that uh, can turn 2D photos into 3D and much, much more. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. That's a lot, actually, now that I've mentioned all the stuff that I want to talk about. Uh, this may actually be uh, quite a substantial show, but hopefully you'll be able to take some extra time off for Easter. I, I don't actually know if that is a tradition in some countries, whether people get like um, some vacation around Easter. Here in the Netherlands, it's no longer linked to Easter. I think it used to be in the past, but since we have this very diverse society. Most of the time the vacation is linked, especially when it comes to schools, is more linked to springtime. And it is different for various parts of the country. This is something that they introduced a number of years ago where not every part of the country would, uh, the kids would not have vacation all at the same time. That was basically to kind of spread it out a little bit, prevent traffic jams around um, uh, attraction parks and that sort of stuff. So not every kid will have some time off. I actually don't know how it is in the normal world because... I'm kind of my own boss right now, so <laughs> the only thing I know that is that it, the time before Easter is um, usually increasingly busy, um, and of course during Holy Week, there's almost every day there's something um, that you need to prepare for, but then after Easter itself, um, I do get to take some time off, and that's actually what I really hope to do. Um, there are a number of specific Easter traditions in the Netherlands. And again, I don't know exactly how that is it, where you live. And I'd love to hear from you. So if you are part of the Patreon community, um, maybe we can exchange some of those traditions in, um, in, in, in on the Discord server. Um, here in the Netherlands, uh, the one of the Easter traditions that I think we share with a lot of other countries is that... Um, that we have eggs. Eggs, of course, symbol of life, new life. Um, 
and the parents will hide the eggs in the garden and children on Easter morning will go out and try to find all those eggs. So, of course, always a bit of a question whether all these eggs will be retrieved. Um, and But then after, after a while, when, when you grow up, you don't do that anymore, but you still have breakfast or brunch with colored eggs. There is a specific tradition that I... Uh, linked to my grandparents on my father's side. Um, so when we were young, sometimes we would go to visit our grandparents and we would even stay there for Easter. So I have Easter mass in, in the south of the country. And then uh, we never ate before mass. I think this is part of kind of how they grew up because in their time uh, you couldn't eat for a number of hours before mass. And so uh, they would eat after Mass. And, of course, Chris, uh, both Christmas and, and Pentecost and, and Easter, those w- would be long celebrations with lots of choral music. And so it would take a while before you could finally sit down and, and eat. And so the, the brunch that followed was very, very long. And just we would be eating for several hours. And I remember that my grandmother had this this tradition i have no idea where it comes from where we could, would get white bread which we never got at home because my mother said it was not healthy so but there we would get white bread we would uh, butter it with real butter another thing that we never had at home and then my grandmother would come in from the kitchen and she would have this uh, gravy and uh, cooked calf's meat uh, in uh, cut in very thin slices and then we she would put the the calf's meat on our on on the two slices of bread and then she would just pour the thick gravy over the bread and oh mouth watering i still when i think of it i'm getting hungry again and that was only at my grandpa uh, grandparents house that we got that and uh, i think later on my mother try, tried to r- replicate that recipe, but it never had the same taste. Um, so it, I think nowadays I would probably just look for a vegetarian uh, uh, alternative because calf's meat is just, I don't know, feels wrong in so many ways. Um, but but I love the gravy with the bread. And so that is maybe a tradition that I would like to continue myself because, of course, now I don't have a family. I don't go to other members of the family on 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 Easter because I'm usually completely wiped out after Holy Week. So I tend to keep things very very low key on the first day of uh, of Easter, um, and when Mass is done, maybe I'll make myself a little bit of a brunch with well, maybe with that gravy. Um, I know that the international parish uh, in Wageningen with Father Henry, they also have a tradition, uh, and since these people are from all over the world, it's a meal. It's a big meal, and everybody brings something in. So it's a potluck, and um, the advantage of that approach, of course, is that you get to taste all these different recipes and dishes from the various cultures that these students come from. And I, I love that tradition. Um, but it's not for me. Uh, usually after Easter, after such an intense week, I just want to be by myself. It is, of course, also linked to my um, kind of introverted nature. And I just am not going to join the, the parish community there. Um, 
I'm usually glad that that it's over. It's fun. I don't really, uh, uh, you know, hate these 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 long liturgies, etc. When I'm part of it, I like it. But afterwards, I'm always so completely wiped out. Um, there is this saying or this joke where when <laughs> when Jesus rises on the third day, that's when the priests go to bed. <laughs> And there is some, there's some truth in that, uh, and and I think it's it's okay uh, to just take some time to recover. So, one of my own traditions uh, during uh, Easter time is to to eat well, but to not go overboard. I'm certainly not going to visit anyone or have guests over for uh, for Easter. Um, that that is something that we used to do, but no, I. I need some time off, and I think one of the ways in which I would like to spend my Easter time is just hanging out with the community online, maybe build a Lego set or play an online game or something like that, but just something super relaxed, something that is that I don't associate with work at all. And then the second day of Easter is also celebrated in the Netherlands. That may also be a particular thing. We celebrate the second day of Easter, even the second day of Pentecost, which doesn't exist liturgically. But here in the Netherlands, we do that. And so it's a day off. Everybody gets a day off. Um, and stores are usually also closed on the second day of Easter, except for the big stores like Ikea. And they get record crowds usually on those second days of Easter, Christmas, or Pentecost. And so it, it's almost a, like a replacement of going to church for many people. It's this common cultural thing where on the second day of Easter you go to Ikea, you eat your Swedish meatballs, and you walk through the store in droves, in procession. Because <laughs> it's one of the busiest days of the year for Ikea. And, of course, that is not a place where I want to be <laughs> on the second day of Easter. I might also watch some movies. I actually really like to sometimes use, even during Holy Week, I will uh, maybe watch, uh, rewatch The Passion of, of the Christ. Or there is also The Chosen, the series The Chosen, um, that I haven't fully watched yet. So, <clears throat> stuff like that, you know. Or, or just watch like a, a nice, upbeat, springtime-like movie that makes me happy because, of course, Easter is the time of joy. And so oftentimes movies, stories help me to, to get into that mood. And so I might actually just watch a, a, a fun movie or something like that. Um, and that's true for the rest of the week. So for this entire week, I'm just going to take it easy. Uh, I'm going to... Uh, just enjoy things and and take some time off give myself a bit of a vacation why not i i still won't be able to stop myself from you know doing the occasional youtube video or you know a podcast like this one but on the whole i think it's it's okay for me to take it easy for a week and well <laughs> it all depends on the weather of course um but go for for some longer walks and just enjoy uh, the nature uh, in, in, in the area where I live right now. It's so beautiful here. And of course, uh, all the flowers are now um, out of the ground. We've got the tulips and everything. This is the best time to visit the Netherlands. Provided, again, that the weather stays fine, <laughs> which is never a given in the Netherlands. 
So let me know what you are doing, what kind of traditions you are following uh, during Easter time. I'd love to hear from you. Again, um, join us on the Discord server. And if you um, are not a patron, check out patreon.com slash fatherodrick. How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. Right now, one of the most intriguing things that I'm watching on on Disney Plus is the series Moon Knight, which is based on another comic book hero from the Marvel stable. And again, it's one of those characters that you may not be familiar with. I certainly had never heard of that character before, but I loved what they did in the trailer. And uh, I, I was intrigued. Uh, because I could already tell from the trailer that there was a lot of symbolism in the series. And, well, so far, the series has not disappointed. It is a really uh, well-crafted series. What I also like is that it is kind of separate from all the other stuff in, uh, in, 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 in the Marvel Universe. Of course, it's still officially part of, the, of this connected universe, but... Finally, we get a series where no one <laughs> refers to the Avengers or you don't have to know any of the other characters. This is a kind of an isolated story. And it's well told and it is interesting. It's really interesting because it, it, uh, it talks about some um, aspects that we've never seen. I have never seen before in, um, uh, a te- well, in, in the Marvel Universe or in the superhero universe uh, altogether. So the main character... Stephen or Mark, because actually we're talking about the main character be having uh, multiple personality disorder. So he've, he's gone through trauma and he cannot, when he is Stephen, he cannot access the other per, uh, person that is part of him, uh, who is this, this, you know, mercenary guy, very, very strong, always knows what to do. American accent is actually American as an American passport, whereas Stephen is British and speaks a quite convincing, you know, British, uh, has, a, has this, this British dialect or, well, dialect or, you know, a way of speaking. And so that is done really well. Um, and it turns out that, well, the Mark, so the other personality that lives inside Stephen, um, has a deal with a an Egyptian deity. And he's the avatar, uh, the personification, the assistant, you could say, of, um, what's his name? Koshu? Koshu? I always get messed up with these names. Uh, I took some notes while watching these episodes. Um, oh, Konshu. Khonshu, uh, which is just one of those many Egyptian gods. and uh, But Stephen has, is not aware of that, and so he gets kind of <laughs> sucked into this adventure that he didn't initiate, that he doesn't like. Um, and at the same... And what is also interesting is that the other character that lives inside of him, or this other in- individual, and there may be m- multiple personalities, we don't know how the story will evolve, Um it also has issues. So it's not that the one guy is just a loser and the other one is the hero. No, the, the strong personality also is, is 
you know, in, in many ways is suffering and has to go through issues. And of course, it's all about uh, the switching back and forth and the two, the, the, everything is about, uh, about reality and a mirror, uh, the mirrors. There's tons and tons of mirror symbolism in this series. And it's also a, a kind of a metaphor of what's at stake, and that is, you know, what is the right thing to do morally? Uh, what is justice? And uh, there's this really interesting um, connection between the visual side, the the idea of the multiple personality disorder, and this ambivalence, this moral ambivalence. So is this Egyptian god is he a good guy or not? It, it, this there's this guru person. Um, is he? He presents himself almost like a Jesus-like savior, but is he really? Hmm. There is a lot of darkness inside that guy. So I love how the series doesn't immediately reveal what's going on, but gradually you discover this through the eyes of of poor Stephen, who has no idea what this other side of his life is all about. So it's very well acted. Um, the special effects are good. They're still, you know, done with a moderate budget. But the one thing that sets this series apart from, for instance, a lot of the, the Star Wars series that we've seen so far is that they really went to film this on location. They did probably also use this big, uh, you know, studio with the LED screens that they've been using extensively or ex- exclusively for uh, for the Star Wars series. But for this series, they did go to Egypt. They did film in London. So, uh, and and that truly is a breath of fresh air. I, I love what they did with Star Wars. And, of course, that helps them keep the budget in check. But at one point, you start to feel it, that everything is a little bit small. I especially had that with Boba Fett, where they... They try to tell a big story, and with special effects, they try to give you the impression that the world of Tatooine is massive. But <clears throat> all the scenes where 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 you see the main characters, you feel the confi- confines of this, you know, digital set, and and you never get the feeling that it is entirely real. Um, whereas with this series, it's much more. It's filmed much more conventionally, like you know, a, a movie. And uh, I hope that with with uh, the upcoming Ben Kenobi series, Obi-Wan Kenobi series, that Star Wars will do something like that. Although I'm... I've got the feeling that it's still mostly filmed inside that virtual set. And they did build um, a practical set outside because we have, like, drone uh, f- photography of, of the set. So, but obviously, if you build an entire set, um, and this looked like a Tatooine set, it's still limited what you can do in terms of just sheer size of of what you can build. Whereas, of course, the story of Moon Knight takes place in the real world, so you can actually do location scouting, go to a city, um, (laughs) close off some streets and film it there. You can't do that with Star Wars because the world's, that Star Wars takes place in are all non-existent. So that is a downside, unless you go into the woods, which a lot of the sequel movies actually did. They went to natural uh, environments because there you can film in, in real woods. They fil- filmed that in um, in the UK mostly. Um, but I, 
I still feel that Star Wars needs a bit of a broader scope. Um, and maybe we'll get it with uh, with Obi-Wan Kenobi. Maybe it will take some more time for them to get the hang of that because I, I feel that Disney is still trying out different ways of filming these stories. And of course, the more successful they get, the more budget they will have to kind of up the ante when it comes to production value. Um, but I think that the, what they do is is impressive, and I like, I really like the storytelling, I like the direction, I like the acting. And the sound design is also often forgotten. The sound design of Moon Knight is really good. I'm always listening to the episodes through my headphones, so you get that really nice stereo sound. Um, it's very subtle, and of course, everything you hear in a movie or in a television show, except for some of the dialogue, it's all added in post-production uh, because there's usually too much noise on the set so a lot of even footsteps uh breaking glass uh during a fight all the thuds and the 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 breaking jaws all that is added afterwards um so it's a ton of work but it's it, it's very very well done in in moon nights it's very subtle um but you you notice how how much it adds to the overall believability of what you see on the screen. So I'm I'm liking it so far. <laughs> Catholics rock. It's time for another visit to the Peculiar Bunch, and this is the place where you can ask any question that you want about Catholics and their traditions, even the ones that Catholics you're afraid of to ask. Peculiar Bunch? No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? Ah, my timing was off there a little bit with the Simpsons quotes. <laughs> I've been using the same jingle for 15 years, and still, still sometimes I can't do it. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. Today I wanted to talk a little bit more about the Gospels and the way they tell the story of the resurrection, the story of Easter, of course. There is a, a, a very distinct difference between the narratives that we find that of, of the events that follow the resurrection compared to those that happened before. Now, none of the Gospels pretend to be like a day-to-day -day journal of events, um, that it, it's... All of the Gospels were composed after Jesus went back to his father, and some of them <clears throat> also rely on the oral tradition that was there before these stories were written down. So the writers of the Gospels were not apostles, uh, save for maybe John, but even John as an author, it's still questionable if he was the John that we hear about in in the as you know being one of the of the apostles or whether this is a kind of a proxy like an <laughs> someone who wrote that down um, putting himself in in the kind of perspective of, of John it doesn't really truly matter because the entire Bible is storytelling it's interpretation of events and it's an inter it's a faith-filled interpretation and also we believe that as christians a uh, divinely inspired interpretation of the events but the storytelling itself adds layers of meaning to what you could also just describe as and then this happened and then that happened but the way in which these stories are written are um 
are trying to help us to understand the true meaning of the events that occurred and connect often these events with what happened before in the stories that we know from the Old Testament. So always keep that in mind. We're reading stories here. And there are, because of the fact that these are stories, there is symbolism involved. This just is very much like Moon Knight. Um, a lot of the visuals are deliberately symbolic. So you see lots of mirrors. You see breaking of glass. And every time I'm, I'm writing, I'm taking notes. It's like, ah, this is a symbol of this. And it's pretty obvious in, in, in Moon Knight. For the biblical stories, it's oftentimes more difficult for us to decipher because these stories have been written 2,000 years ago. Um Often in the context, a cultural context, a, a linguistic context, they're very different from our context today. So often we just need to study a little bit more to understand <clears throat> what exactly is the meaning that is hidden underneath the surface of the events that are described. So this is how you also should look at the way the Gospels talk about the resurrection. Of course, the resurrection itself is literally a metaphysical event. It goes beyond what we can explain through pure physics. It is uh, it's a, a different, of a different nature. It's very similar to the existence of God itself. That is metaphysical. It's above the physical world that we know and can, to a certain degree, understand and describe. Um, and that's a good thing. <laughs> because it means that God is not part of this world. He, he surpasses our understanding. If we can understand it, it's not God. That's kind of the principle at work here. So the way in which these stories are written down uh, about what happens after the resurrection all uh, have a number of interesting similarities. The person of Christ, of course, is still central in these events. However, it's no longer purely chronological. Jesus appears, and then all of a sudden he's gone. He is suddenly in their midst, and then he's gone again. They don't seem to be able to get a hold of him anymore. The reality that Jesus is a part of is still a physical reality, and Jesus himself, after the resurrection, wants to emphasize this. So at one point, the the apostles actually, or his, his followers, think that they see a ghost. They don't believe that this is real because they saw Jesus die. They were witnesses and they heard witnesses who saw that he was truly dead. They put him in this tomb. And so when they see him in their midst, they can't wrap their minds around it. And the only explanation that they can come up with is this is a ghost. This is not real. We're, we're just imagining this or it's, you know, some evil spirit or whatever. And then Jesus proves that he is truly physically present with them by asking them, do you have some food? And he eats the food. And it's like, well, if I were a ghost, I wouldn't be able to do this. So the physicality of the resurrection is a very important part of the testimony that we see in the gospel. This is not just sim a symbolic event, the resurrection. It's not something that the apostles came up with just to find consolation and to, you know, kind of pass on a message that ultimately, symbolically, life should always be stronger than dead, uh, death. And you know, that's why we keep telling these stories about Jesus who, you know, rose from the dead as a metaphor. 
the, the Gospels are make it very clear this is not, we're not talking about a metaphor. We're not talking about fantasy here. We're not talking about a fairy tale ending. This is a truly physical uh, uh, presence of Jesus. And, but at the same time, there is also a dimension of this physically resurrected Jesus that escapes them, that they can't grasp, that they can't hold on to. And Jesus even forbids them to do that. Don't hold on to me, he tells the, the women uh, uh, in, the, in the garden and near the grave. Uh, don't, don't hold me back. And that is also because this is a temporary phase, the, these, these apparitions where he is in their midst and gives them gives uh, them their final mission to go to the ends of the world and baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because this is his legacy that he's preparing. He's going back to the Father. That's where he belongs. And it's now up to the disciples to continue his mission, which, of course, also is not just a fairy tale mission. It's not just about telling stories. No, it's about physically helping the poor, healing the sick, expo- uh, um, uh, getting rid of the demons, etc. Uh, this is um, that. This is why the physical aspect of the resurrection is so important, because it shows that the the future of Jesus' mission and his presence needs the physical presence of his disciples near the people that Jesus would be near to. And that is why, for instance, the sacraments that we have in the Catholic Church all have this physical aspect to them. It's about being really there and being able to touch, to lay hands upon someone, to talk to a living, breathing being, because God is not just a thought. It's not just a mental exercise. God wants to be much closer than that. He wants to be really there in our midst. And so the physicality of the sacraments mirrors the physicality of the resurrected Jesus. So, But there's also a lot going on that they can't explain. Jesus continues to uh, talk about the Holy Spirit that, that, that uh, he and the Father will send after Jesus when, goes back to his Father. So there's also a lot of stuff going on that the disciples don't understand yet, and it, they have to wait for the advent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection, to fully be, not to grasp, but to be grasped by, by uh, the Spirit of Jesus and the Spirit of the Father. And so uh, the and and even there, uh, it's the, the 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 advent of the Holy Spirit is described in physical terms. There is this wind. There is something that looks like a fire. So it's visible. It's you can feel it. You can experience it. It's not just a thought. It's not just they were sitting there and they were reminiscing. Um, no, it's about a reality. And that's very important. As soon as you let go of that, you <laughs> end up in heresy where you, you where you actually diminish the impact of the resurrection. Because if the resurrection is just, just a thought experiment, if it's just a fairy tale, then what does it ultimately mean for us? Does it mean that my future resurrection, my eternal life is also just a thought experiment? Just a kind of... A, <laughs> a wish upon a star, something that is just going to be, I don't know, symbolic. 
what good is that? You know, that you may be fine with that if you're still alive, but if you're on the brink of dying, then it, it, that really makes a difference if this is all kind of symbolic and, 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 and metaphoric, or if it's a real, uh, if it's, a, it's referring to a reality. And I, for my part, definitely hope that the resurrection is a real thing and not just a fairy tale, because otherwise, you know what, That's, it's just going to be my life right here and now. And so why, why would I do my best? <laughs> why, you know, what does it truly matter? And how can I possibly reconcile the, the existence of God with, for instance, a child dying in the war in Ukraine? When, if there is no resurrection, then that death becomes horribly unjust and, and unjustifiable and tragic and without hope. So... St. Paul says it multiple times, you know, the resurrection is has to be real. If it's not real, it's not reality that we're talking about, then your entire faith is void and, and, and null and has no meaning and has no sense. So that's why these stories, we need to read them carefully and, and, and really uh, acknowledge that at least the writers of the Gospels um, were convinced that the resurrection of Jesus was not just a symbol was not just um, something that the followers of Jesus imagined just to feel good or to have like a nice story that they could tell people to to inspire them. If it's not real, then it doesn't count, and it ultimately doesn't have make any sense. And just as much as the life of Jesus was real, and Jesus, uh, if Jesus is the Son of God, God really wanted to be in our midst in a specific time, in a specific culture, meeting specific people, because it's not an idea. <laughs> it is a real incarnation. And so if that is true for the life of Jesus, then that also has to be true for the, for the, the life of Jesus between the resurrection and uh, his return to the Father. That's what I wanted to share with you. Pay extra attention to the stories that we read in Mass and in the readings after, uh, after Easter because it's, there's both this, they recognize Jesus and they don't recognize him. There's, it's the same, and yet there's also something that has changed for good because the Jesus after the resurrection is the eternal Jesus um, and there is, there is no more death. There is no more decay. There is no more suffering. And the apostles, by describing that you know, there is something that eludes them in the resurrected Jesus, they don't recognize him, or only after Jesus identifies himself, that is part of that confusion that this is the same Jesus, and yet there is something changed. Yes, there is no more death. This is the Jesus that lives forever, just as much as we, when we die and ultimately will receive uh, a new body in the resurrection, which is also a physical reality that the, the Catholic Church, Church professes, um, we will be both the same and different because, well, our physical body that we currently have will no longer be there, and the body that we will receive will be uh, a new creation, and it will still be us. So it's that same kind of dichotomy that you see in these stories after the resurrection. Now, this, of course, you can wreck your brain about this, um, but it is not something that you can actually understand because 
And it doesn't mean it doesn't make sense and it's not rational. You can surely have a very rational discourse. That's why I'm trying to explain this. But at the same time, it's something that surpasses our current uh, uh, ability to understand. We're talking about things uh, that are not there yet and that we, well, <laughs> that's why there is also an element of faith in all this. And do we have proof of this? Can, can we? No. If we would have proof, it would no longer be faith. If it's something we can explain, it no longer has anything to do with God. That is kind of the, the strange, contradictory nature of uh, the faith in the resurrection. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? I continue my quest to read 100 books this year, and since I'm doing a lot of uh, reading through by listening through audiobooks, and I have to <laughs> a lot of time that I'm going to invest in the weeks to come in into walking. I'm training for this walking event, so I have a ton of time to continue uh, reading books. Uh, I'm well underway. I'm actually ahead of schedule, which has never happened before. I recently read the book Organizing for the Rest of Us, 100 Realistic Strategies to Keep Any House Under Control, written by Dana White. I really loved her previous book, um, which was also about decluttering for the rest of us or something like that. And it, Because the humor is great. She... She writes from the perspective that you can relate to. This is not a Mary Kondo who is like super good at living this incredibly organized life and everything is folded perfectly. No, this is written from the perspective like the rest of us. Like, yeah, it, it is really hard to keep things organized. And she describes her, her experience as a mom dealing with kids that are not organized and don't get it and continually frustrate your your efforts to keep the house clean and in order and it's from that experience that she shares her own tips and tricks on how to keep your 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 life and your house more or less organized and there were a number of tips that she gives that I was already implementing based on her previous book but I also picked up a few things that really helped me uh, since I started implementing themselves, uh, them myself. One of these tips, I'm just going to share a few of them, is uh, clean the kitchen every time because it's much easier to clean it up and just when there's a little bit of clutter than doing it like after a week, like most students do where the kitchen, if you've ever been in a student's house or you remember your own time as a student, um, usually people started cleaning up the kitchen when the cockroaches were all over the place, you know, when it really couldn't be, uh, be postponed anymore. Um, so it's this discipline of just take a five minute, 10 minutes to clean up after each cooking session. And not only will that make it much easier, especially when you've when you're just done cooking, it's usually easier to clean the pan and the utensils than if you leave it there for a day and everything is like solidified and crusty and it takes much more effort to clean it. But also it helps you, to, like there's at least this one place in your house that when you enter it, it is orderly and it looks nice and you know where everything is. 
So it does also uh, have an impact, a po very positive impact on your own mind and your own inner, <laughs> inner organization. Uh, another thing was to pick sp specific days for specific tasks. Um, like I wash my own clothes, um, and I usually would do that whenever I had some time. Same with folding. Sometimes I would leave the 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 wash when once I or the laundry once I'd washed it. I would just leave it on top of the dish, uh, not the dishwasher, the 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 washing machine, and thinking, you know, I'll fold that some other time. Again, it's all about doing it right away is much easier than doing it after the fact. So. For me, Monday is my washing day. That's when I gather all my clothes. There's a specific reason for that. Um, on Monday, it's usually when I get organized. So this process, when I'm folding the laundry, I'm already in my mind kind of preparing the week. I'm thinking of so how what am I going to do with my time? How do I organize the many things that are on my plate right now? And being in the process of folding the laundry helps me to think that through. So then when after that I sit down and I fill in my calendar, I've used that time to organize my mind. So while I'm organizing the laundry, I'm also organizing my mind. So that really helps me. Plus Monday, during the weekend, I do a lot of running and walking and sports and whatnot. So that's usually a good time for me to wash all those clothes so they are clean and nicely folded for Tuesday evening running training. Uh, the next tip is, this is also very much um, used in her decluttering book, see the shelves and cupboards and boxes as containers, which means they have limited capacity. Full is full. And... If you find yourself trying to cram in more stuff on the shelves or let's say you've got bookshelves and you discover I've got too many books, you can do two things. You can buy an, another bookshelf, um, which is fine if you have the space. But if you don't have the room, then something needs to go. Um, clutter tends to fill whatever you, whatever space you give it. Whereas if you see every storage space as a container, um, it forces you to make choices and to get rid of what uh, you have too much. And it prevents you from becoming a hoarder, which you know many of us are to a certain extent. But seeing this, uh, well, I have this container. It's not that I have to live completely you know, devoid of stuff. Decluttering is not about getting rid of everything, but it's getting rid of getting rid of the surplus of what you have too much of and making sure that what you own and what you save is actually useful is contributing to your life instead of just being there for just in case just in case is usually just an excuse not to make decisions so that that's very helpful as well and then the final tip is when you start cleaning up Make sure that every object has a go-to place. And that can be a temporary go-to place, but you need to know for every object that you own, what is its natural habitat. Where Socks are not supposed to be on the floor. Socks should either be in the 
washing machine or they should be in a drawer. And the more you force yourself to pick, a, and it can be anything, you know, it's fine if you want to store your socks in the kitchen as long as you know that if I find a sock, it goes to that place in the kitchen. And that is actually so helpful to quickly clean up because you don't have to think, well, what am I going to do with this? And so um, what I used to do in the past was just make <laughs> turning one pile into three other piles. I was like, um, yeah, this... Um, I may need this, so I'm going to put this on this pile, and then this, I can, I'm going to put this on the pile of first throwing away, and then something would happen, I would get distracted, and instead of having one pile, I would have three piles. Um, knowing where stuff goes is helping you to stay organized and to quickly get rid of things that are otherwise cluttering up your life. So it's one of the things that I learned from Ingham, who does a lot of the administration for Tridio. She says... I before I um, do anything with with uh, mail, I scan it in, and then I throw the paper away because we have a digital operation here. We have a digital office, so um, if if something comes in before I put it anywhere in my in my house, I first put it on the scanner. I scan it in and I throw away the physical copy of it because the digital copy will do, and then I process that but then it doesn't take up any space anymore this is also how we got rid of tons and tons of paper in the past we used to have these these ordners uh full of of photocopies and copies of copies of of bills and 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 invoices for what reason that's not no longer necessary also from a, a legal point of view you're not you're, you're not required to keep physical copies of, of those documents. Having a digital copy suffices. And so I've emptied out all those ordners and um, I need to still find a purpose for them. Or uh, Well, actually a purpose. I don't have a purpose for them. They were cluttering up my bookshelves. So I, I'm going to just give them away or maybe there's someone, maybe the parish can use them because they, they process a lot of paper. Um, so maybe for archival purposes, that this may be interesting, but I don't want to keep a physical archive of stuff. Uh, my house is big, but it, I, I just can't use the clutter anymore. So anyway, great book. was really inspiring. I loved it, and I love the humor. It's a fun book to read, whereas organizing, cleaning up is not always the most fun, but this book makes it fun. Uh, again, it's written by Dana White, it's called Organizing for the Rest of Us, 100 Realistic Strategies to Keep Any House Under Control. Scientifically wonderful world of science. What sort of science? Welcome back, science friends. Let's talk about the Hubble telescope, because you'd almost forget that it's still around and it's still taking pictures. We have, of course, the new space telescope that is gearing up and everything still goes well. But in the meantime, Hubble Telescope still keeps discovering new stars, new star systems and phenomena. Now, we recently got news that the Hubble Telescope took a picture of the most distant star that we've ever discovered. And of course, you know that when we look at stars, we're actually looking back into time because it takes years, decades, centuries, thousands of centuries for light to, to reach us. And so what we see in the sky is actually no longer there. The light of the moon 
may have left the moon uh, a couple of minutes ago, but the light that we see from distant stars, often these stars are the light, what we see happened thousands and thousands of years ago. And so a light year is basically the time it takes uh, for the light to reach us. So it's a, it's a, a, a distance measurement, but, but it's also a time of a factor in time. And so the, if we see a distant star, the, the farther away it is, the more we're looking at, at the origins of the universe. So this star is a whopping 12.9 billion light years from Earth. So it's the most distant single star that we've ever found. And um, it may not have been part of the f first generation of stars, but it definitely goes back in time to about, you know, maybe, maybe it's a couple of tens of millions of years uh, away from when star formation actually began in the universe that we know. So the fun thing of this is that when they discovered this most distant star, they called it Arendelle. And Arendelle is actually a name that comes from the Lord of the Rings. Arendelle is a half-elven character who is carrying one of the Silmarils, one of those jewels. And uh, this, this uh, Silmaril is called the Morning Star. And the, one of the specific elements of the story of Arendelle, and it's an old English word because that's where Tolkien got most, well, a lot of his inspiration, not just uh, old English, also from Norse languages, uh, for his names. But the star, the meaning of Arendelle means basically the dawn, it's a morning star, the dawn of time. It refers to the dawn of stars forming. And Arendelle himself, if I, if I understand this correctly, this half-elven was not allowed to touch the ground anymore. He couldn't return to Middle-earth. Um, so he went to the land of the gods. It's always a bit difficult to talk about that in, 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 uh, in, in Tolkien's world because it's not a, a metaphor of our own universe uh, or, or theology for that matter. Um, but... Once he is helped by the higher forces in Middle-earth or in the world of Tolkien, um, he, cannot, he can no longer return to the place where he used to come from. Uh, but instead, he gets a chariot, a flying chariot. And so he is able to fly over the land. He cannot touch it, but he flies through the sky. Um, I'm sure that there are some Tolkien experts in our audience that know the full story. It's not something that I'm very familiar with, so I'm trying to reproduce what I heard on one of the the Tolkien TikTokers that I follow. Uh, on his, uh, uh, by the way, it's it's called Obscure Lord of the Ring Facts. Um, you may want to check that out because it's very much. If you only follow one guy on on TikTok, I would recommend him because he's so knowledgeable and he's got these awesome. Uh, you know, treats almost like it's it, actually. I may do I have that a link to that video? Yeah, I'm just gonna play that here. I think I can. Let me see if this works. So, because he explains it much better than I do. Uh, just click on this. Does this work? Okay, accept the cookies. And let's see if I can have this make. Maybe I should refresh this window because. 
okay, so I do hear something, but the audio is coming over the speakers of the monitor, but I can fix that. Uh, let me just... So now I've rerouted the sound through the roadcaster, which means that we should be able to hear the audio through the roadcaster. Let's see if this works. Oh my god, this is the best day ever. I get to talk about my three favorite things. Obscure Lord of the Rings facts, current events, and space! Earlier today, NASA announced that the Hubble telescope has discovered its most distant star. It's this one right here, called Erendil. But what does a star's name have to do with the Lord of the Rings? Well, Erendil is also the name of Elrond's dad. During the First Age in Middle-earth, Elrond's dad is involved in a war between the elves, humans, and dwarves, and Sauron's master, Morgoth. This whole war started because Morgoth stole three of the elves' sacred jewels called the Silmarils that glow very brightly. Very long story short, eventually Elrond's dad winds up in possession of one of these Silmarils. But at this point, Middle-earth is so desperate for help that Elrond's mom and dad eventually take a boat and sail from Middle-earth to the Undying Lands where the lesser gods live to beg for their help. And Elrond's dad uses the Silmaril to help help light his way to the Undying Lands. The gods do agree to help, but there's a catch. Arendil can't return to Middle-earth. Or at least he can't step foot on it again. So, the lesser gods give Arendil's boat the power to fly. So just imagine this, Elrond's dad flying on a boat using the Silmaril as like this guiding beacon for a bunch of eagles flying around him as they go and face a dragon that is the size of a small mountain range. The elves, humans, and dwarves are eventually victorious, but Elrond's dad can't return. So, with the Silmaril in hand, he takes the flying ship and guards the sun and the moon, forever flying through space. NASA, you're a bunch of nerds, and I respect it. Follow for more obscure Lord of the Rings facts. Oh. So, in case you weren't convinced yet that TikTok is worth, uh, uh, worth your while um, as a social media platform, I would have never known this if it hadn't been for TikTok because this showed up in my feed. I was like, wow, I want to share this. So go check it out. I'll include a link to this video and to the account from Don Marshall uh, in the show notes on the website. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device and it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. Two weeks ago, I talked about Topaz Video Enhanced AI, and I was telling you how it can help you uh, sharpen and upscale uh, low-quality video content. Um, and this is the whole new dimension of image processing that I'm super excited about. It's also a little bit scary uh, because of the power of it, but this neural rendering uh, is, is taking hold of the entire graphics industry. And I've noticed that Photoshop now also has a, nor a, a number of neural filters that you can use, for instance, and I think I, I've talked about this before, uh, on, on black and white photos. And it will guess the colors and do a pretty good job in rendering a black and white picture in, in color. Now, NVIDIA... Uh, who's a, a that's a company that produces, uh, among other things, graphics cards, they've been developing what they call NVIDIA NERF. Um, and it is another uh, neural rendering process 
that can turn 2D photos into 3D scenes, but it can do it very, very quickly. This is technology that Google has also been developing, uh, for instance, to combine, and, and Microsoft was also working on this, combine photos that people would upload to their services, uh, services and then interpret that and turn that into 3D models. And I think actually they can do a much better job than what they're currently rolling out because it's also a bit scary, you know. You can, you can bring people alive. There are actually f- uh, filters in TikTok. Um, if you point them at photos, it can be just 2D photos, for instance, of you know someone who passed away, that photo will actually start to be animated pretty convincingly in 3D. So all of a sudden, that static photo of your dad or whatever will start blinking and, and, and slowly moving the head and, you know, smiling, frowning. And it's uncanny. It's a bit scary, but it's also super powerful. Um, you can even use it on drawings or on paintings of, of, of people that have never existed. So... This, but this NVIDIA is, is the stuff of, of science fiction movies. You remember in Blade Runner, the first movie, where uh, Harrison Ford is zooming in on a photo and then his computer can actually look around the corner of a photo. And that's where he discovers clues about whatever he's looking for. Um, this is, of course, still science fiction, but the idea that a computer is able to generate... Uh, a 3D model based on a 2D photo, that technology is real now. And uh, there is a pretty impressive short demonstration on YouTube. Uh, Just go Google NVIDIA Instant Nerf, where they show you a woman who's holding a camera. And I think there are just four pictures of her. One or two taken from the front, one from the side, and one from the back. And then it, it starts animating. Based on four photos, a full, like, the camera is turning around her. And it's as if this is a 3D model. It is incredibly impressive. And, of course, this is only the beginning. They're just starting to work on this. Uh, in, in, in the future, this, I mean, the applications are insane. You could bring to life... Uh, scenes from the past imagine if you would use this on i don't know photos from the first world war or you could feed uh old footage from black and white movies into this neural model and it could recreate scenes uh isolate objects and and even characters and animate it you could do like retakes of scenes in movies that you know no one is there anymore none of the sets are imagine that you could feed it with footage from the back to the future movies and then you could film the same scene with different angles maybe even add special effects that were not possible at the time this could be groundbreaking and these neural enhancements I think can actually have great value for instant for um, take as an example Babylon Five. Um, it's a great science fiction series. However, it was done with very limited special effects at the time that were rendered just in low resolution. This is one of the reasons that there's never been a DVD 
of uh, of of the uh, Babylon Five, th- there is an upscale that they use on streaming platforms for Babylon Five, where they were able to do a you know a decent upscale of that low resolution stuff, but you can still tell that the models, everything that's special effects, it still looks really bad. And in order to issue like a 4K version, for instance, they would have to re-render or rebuild all those digital models. It would be completely cost prohibitive. But if you use this kind of AI-powered, uh, intelligent upscaling and re-rendering, you could do something that was totally impossible up until this moment, and you could revive old, grainy, you know, bad footage and turn it into something that is, you know, more real than than reality itself. It's scary because I can also imagine, well, I can't really imagine, but I'm pretty sure that there are also very nefarious uses possible uh, with this technology, but I'm mostly excited about the just a potential and I'm, I'm just baffled that, that that I live in that I live to see a, a, an era where where technology can do this it is absolutely incredible <laughs> I have no words for it hey that's the end of uh, this week's episode this uh, Easter episode of my show thank you so much for the privilege of your time i hope you have a a great easter time and if you're a patron of course uh, there are more shows coming up in your feed Uh, another episode of father roderick to the max an episode of uh, the extra mile which is a continuation of the walks that i publish in the podcast the walk and of course there will be uh more episodes of the gospel for geeks in um this week's episode of Father Roderick to the max, in case you want to know. I'll talk about uh, my morning routine. Um, I'll give you a recipe for air fryer soy sauce chicken. It's really delicious. Um, I'll explain how I stay motivated, even if I'm not immediately seeing results of my efforts. I'll give you uh, my impressions of Star Trek Picard and the trailer of Strange New Worlds, which is a new Star Trek series. Um, I'll talk about a few more video games, unpacking, and the game Tunic, and of course, much, much more. All that for the patrons. If you want to become one of the patron members and join that community, go over to patreon.com slash father Rick. Father, father Rick, no, <laughs> patreon.com slash father Roderick. I'm speaking faster than my mind works or vice versa. I don't know, but... <laughs> I'm going to wrap up things. See you later. Thank you.